When I was 21 years old, yeah, I know that was a long time ago. So you have to, <clears throat> 21 years old, I was a youth pastor at Cal Island Baptist Church in Corpus Christi. Brother Ted Eaton was a senior pastor, he was my boss, and uh, I often uh, sat in his office while he told me stories and talked to me a lot. He, he really wanted to mentor me into the future pastor I would become. And one of the exciting things that happened as I arrived on the job is that we were going to take a group of students to an evangelism conference in Dallas. And it wasn't a very youth, very big youth group. Uh, and so uh, Brother Ted, as we called him, uh, said, I'll take my station wagon. That tells you how long ago that was. And uh, he said, I'll take some kids there. And then Julio, you drive the other vehicle and, and you'll take the rest of the kids there. And I said, sure. So we took off from Corpus Christi, Dallas bound. We stopped at our first fuel stop and Brother Ted pulls up to a diesel pump and he fills up the station wagon with diesel because it was a diesel engine. I pull up to a gas pump and I put gas in my car and, and after the kids buy their snacks and they get back in the car, uh, we make our way to Dallas. It was an incredible evangelism conference. The kids enjoyed it. And, we got back and I was excited because we had a good start to our summer and we had good ministry the rest of the summer. And then when it got close to Christmas, we were going to take a shopping trip to San Antonio. And so I, um, I told uh, Brother Ted about it and he said, I can't go this time, so why don't you drive my station wagon? And I said, sure. And another parent said, well, I'll take my conversion van and I'll, I'll take the rest of the kids. And, and so we had enough uh, for transportation. and. And we left Corpus Christi, first fuel stop. I pulled up to a diesel pump and I fill up the station wagon. Uh, the parent pulls up to a gasoline pump and she fills up the van. And as we pull up to um, get on the freeway so that we can continue our journey to San Antonio, the, the station wagon dies. And so I crank the ignition again and it just putters and it dies again. And I do that about five or six times and, and it just won't stay on. And I said, I don't know what's wrong. I, I guess I'm going to have to call Brother Ted, my, my boss, and, and let him know that his station wagon is something wrong. Something's wrong with it. So I called him and I told him what had happened and what I had done. I was proud that I had done the right thing. And uh, he said, Julio, don't you remember the story I told you of how I changed the diesel engine to a gasoline engine? earlier. And the truth is I didn't remember because sometimes when I sat in brother Ted's office, I would daydream. I, he would tell stories and I was thinking about something else. And uh, I guess I shouldn't listen to that story because here I was stranded between Corpus Christi and San Antonio with a group of students. Uh, and someone had to come and siphon the diesel out of the station wagon so that we could move it. I learned at least two lessons that day. One, is that if you're a youth pastor, you should listen to your senior pastor. And the second one is that diesel doesn't work in gasoline engines. Jesus talked about things that don't work together. Uh, he, he was talking about that because he wanted to teach a bigger lesson. And, and he does this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, verse 36. He talks about these two things that don't go well together. So uh, if you go there with me, Luke chapter 5, verse 36, we'll, we'll read this short passage of Scripture. 
says, he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, uh, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. So not only does diesel not go into gasoline engine, uh, a patch of new cloth doesn't go on an old garment and new wine doesn't go on old wineskins. Well, Jesus tells us these things and I think that he's not just trying to do a TikTok life hack list. I think that he's offering here something more profound, a, a truth that, that goes beyond the earthly example something that is significant. Jesus wants to highlight the difference between what it means to follow him and what it means to follow other teachers, other religions. In fact, he is giving this parable as a response to a question. We're in a summer series that we're calling Follow Jesus, Belong, Believe, and Become. And we're looking at different passages from the Gospel of Luke to understand what it means to follow Jesus. What does it look like? How do we belong? How do we believe? How do we become? And so today we're talking about the call to become. And the question is, if Jesus is calling us to become something different, how are you different? How are you different from others who don't follow Jesus? How are you and I different from others who, who claim religion or even Christianity, uh, but, but are not like Christ, haven't become what God wants them to become? So let's talk about that. The first thing that I notice here is that religious traditions cannot give life. The Jewish religious, of, uh, religious leaders of Jesus' day were offended by Jesus' seeming disregard for their religious traditions. Jesus had called Levi, a tax collector, to become his disciple. And Levi was so excited about that, about the fact that Jesus would pay attention to him, that he decides to throw a party and he wants Jesus to be the guest of honor, and then he invites all his friends. Now his friends were tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders of the day are alarmed by Jesus' unconventional behavior, by Jesus and his friends being at a party with sinners. Now, I want you to know, I really enjoy the party that we threw on Tuesday here at Calvary. It was a 4th of July party, and we invited the whole community there were a lot of people on our campus. There were people that were from Calvary. Many of them uh, were serving. And there were people that were not from Calvary. There were people who uh, you could tell might go to church. And there were people who you wondered if they ever went to church. They were all here. And there was music. There was inflatables. There was face painting. There were games for the kids. There was hot dogs and popcorn. And it was just a joyful atmosphere. Everybody seemed to be having a good time. One of the things that I really enjoyed was meeting new people. Some of you brought guests and you introduced them to me. These are my neighbors or these are my friends or these are people I invited. And everyone I met on that day was, was just thankful that we threw this party. They were thankful that we welcomed them and that we're doing, this is really nice, they said. You have something for the kids and, and, uh, and, and all, all of the things that they were just thanking us for what we did. And as I invited one of the families to our church on Sunday, she said, is your church like this? And I thought, what a great question. 
Is our church on Sunday morning like that welcoming crowd that we were on Tuesday? And I, and I said, yes, that's us. We, we welcome people, we throw parties, we make Jesus the guest of honor, and then we invite everyone because we want people to meet him. But when the Jewish religious leaders witness Jesus and his disciples eating and drinking and having a good time, they thought, what a bad testimony. They, they are not behaving like us that are really seeking God. If you really want to seek God, then, then you do religious things like fasting and praying. That's their question in verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. This, this Pharisees had a difficult time conceiving that Jesus... And his disciples did not follow their traditions, the traditions of, of the Pharisees and of John's disciples. And it's important to note that these traditions were not necessarily from the law of Moses. If you, if you read the law of Moses, you know that there's only one occasion in which God's people are required to fast. It's called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the Jewish people are supposed to fast and pray. They're supposed to think about their sins for the last year and how uh, they need God's forgiveness. It's an important day in the Jewish calendar. Other than that, people could fast if they wanted to, if they were sad or if, if they had a dire need they really wanted to seek God because they were in trouble, they could fast. But it was always voluntary. It was never mandatory. And yet the Pharisees had managed not only to fast not once a year, but twice a week, but they had imposed that tradition on their disciples. And they thought anyone who didn't follow their ways or their tradition was just not spiritual enough. They were just not trying hard enough. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting and praying be beyond what the Bible requires you. You can do that voluntarily as God leads you to do it. The problem here is that the Pharisees didn't see a difference between their traditions and the Bible. They didn't see a difference between their religious preferences and God's word. And when you can't tell the difference between your tradition and the scriptures, you're in trouble. You're in trouble, perhaps even in danger of idolatry, of, of raising your traditions and your preferences to the same level as the scriptures. Now, religious traditions are not necessarily bad. We have some good ones. And, and, and sometimes they enhance our faith. But our traditions should always be under the lens of Scripture. We may like the way that we do worship. We may like a certain music style when we, when we come to church. Or the way that we do our groups, we have a tradition of, of where we meet and what we eat and, and how we gather. We like to have our candlelight services on Christmas Eve. That's one of our traditions, one of my favorite. We like to pray before meals. We like to pretend that Baptists don't dance. We, 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 we like to hold symbols dear, uh, such as hymnals and, and stained glass windows and pews and, and choirs and things like that that make us feel good. But all of those things are, are just preferences. They're just traditions. The only thing you really need to have a vibrant church is the cornerstone, which is Jesus, the Spirit of God dwelling in the midst of his people, and the scriptures. That's all you really need. Everything else is added, is icing on the cake. It's, it, it may enhance your faith, but it can never produce life. See, Jesus and his disciples 
came to bring life to Levi. They came to bring joy to him and his friends. And the Pharisees just couldn't stand it. They wanted them to be somber and joyless. Do you know, do you know church people like that? Church people that get mad when you're having a good time? They just can't stand it. They, they want you to be bitter like them. They want you to be upset like them. That was the Pharisees. How can anyone, how can anyone fast when the source of joy is in your midst? When the overflowing presence of God is right in your midst, how can someone fast? Now, this is not just a New Testament concept that Jesus introduces. It was God's way. Isaiah had spoken about the uselessness of keeping religious rituals when the life of God is not flowing from within you. For example, look at Isaiah 58, chapter 5. It talks about fasting, specifically the Day of Atonement. And, and if you go there to chapter 5, verse 58, rather, Isaiah 58, verse 5, it, it says this. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this kind of fasting I have chosen? To lose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like spring whose waters never fell. Wow. God is saying to these people, listen, just because you keep the ritual, just because you, you keep uh, the tradition, doesn't mean that I'm pleased with it. What I'm looking for is for a life that flows from within, for, for a spring that I provide that flows from you that shows that you really belong to me. Whenever you impose religious traditions on others, we can only hope for an external religion, for a superficial faith. God wants people to demonstrate his heart and spirit. He wants us to become something different than just a religious person. He didn't come to patch up our old ways. And that's the second thing I wanna to say to you. Sinful people cannot produce life. A patch made from new cloth cannot make an old garment new. And the same thing applies with new wine and old wineskins. In, in the old days, people used uh, animal skins to hold wine. Often it was goat skins. So when you would pour the wine into a wineskin and the wine would ferment and, and, and would expand and the wineskin that was new had elasticity and so it would expand as the wine would change. But if the wineskin was old 
it become brittle and hard, then when the wine was fermenting and expanding in the wineskin, then it would burst and you would lose the wine and the wineskin. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that the old cannot be reformed into new. That the only way to have new is to start from scratch. The gospel is not some kind of self-improvement plan. The gospel is not some list of steps that you take little by little so that you can reform your old self. A sinful heart cannot produce life. The sinful nature cannot produce holiness. You can sprinkle water on it. You can baptize it by immersion. You can make it keep rules. You can forbid it from doing this or that, but it will never produce a Christian life. Just like an orange, cannot, an orange tree cannot produce apples and a sewer cannot produce drinking water, the sinful nature cannot produce the Christian life, holy living. The power for holy living comes from Jesus. He's the only one who can. He comes to bring incredible power and incredible joy to our lives. But that power cannot be contained into the sinful nature. The new wine cannot be contained by the old wineskin of our hearts. The religious leaders of Jesus' day did all the right things. They kept the right rules. They prayed the right prayers. They followed the right rules. They, they, they had the right doctrine, the right statement of faith. But their religion was dead. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Matthew 23, 27. He says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Ouch. Their religion was external and that was it. It consisted of doctrines and traditions and rituals and rules, but there was no life within them. There were old wineskins that couldn't receive the new wine from Jesus. It's a problem of the heart. Jesus says so in Matthew 15, 7 and 8. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. It's interesting to me that Jesus' harshest words are not for the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners. His harshest words are for religious people who practice a religion that is external, that is a religion of self-effort, a religion of man-made rules. As we look at the mess in our culture today, as we think about all the immorality out there, the upside values of people, there are some who believe, you know, if we just pass the right laws, and if we just impose the right values on the public square, if we just make people do the right thing, then, then, then things would be different. And listen, right laws are important, and the right values and the right behaviors are good. But if you impose them on people who have not been redeemed by Christ, it will not produce the life of God in them. So sometimes people talk about uh, the fact that we need revival, and I agree. We need revival in our country. Uh, when people follow that with saying, if we can get prayer back in school, and if we get the Ten Commandments in the classrooms, and, and, and if we can get the right textbooks, then we're gonna have revival, and I say, wait a minute, 
I like prayer. I like the Ten Commandments. I hope we have good textbooks. But the nation of Israel had the Ten Commandments. They had the Torah. They had, the right, they had prayer. They had good worship rituals. They had everything. And yet they continually disobeyed and dishonored God. It wasn't enough for them to have the right rules, the right commandments. They needed something else. And God tells them what they really need in Ezekiel chapter 36. Beautiful passage where, where God says, you know, what you really need beyond the commandments, beyond the rituals, beyond the values and the rules, this is what you need. Ezekiel 36 verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The people of God had the Ten Commandments. They had the moral laws, but they did not produce the God life within them. What they needed was a new heart that would receive the Spirit of God, a new wineskin that would receive God's new wine. Sometimes I hear wives that are frustrated with their husbands because they don't come to church, because they don't read the Bible, because they have bad habits, and, and they think, if I just nag him long enough, if I just nag him about not coming to church, about being the spiritual man that he should be, about doing the right thing, about leaving his bad habits, I know that one day he will change. Well, listen, the only thing that can change a husband or a wife who's not close to God is a new heart. Is the Spirit of God working in a heart that is open to that. And so we pray for that. We cannot rely on old wineskins. We need new wineskins. We cannot expect our sinful nature to produce the life of the Spirit. We need a new nature. I really believe that the reason that many church people don't act in a Christ-like manner, even though they believe the right things, even though they do the right things. They don't act Christ-like because they don't have the Spirit of God. They're just religious people, church-going people. The reason that a lot of Christians live defeated lives is because they're trying to produce the God life out of their sinful nature. You don't have to do that. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. When you place your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, he makes you a new person, a new creation. He makes you a new wineskin that can withhold the power and the joy of the new wine of the Spirit of God. When you are in Christ, you have the power to become like Christ, to act like Christ, to treat others like Christ, to have Christ-like conversations, to have a Christ-like attitude. And listen, if you're having a hard time with that, if your conversation and your relationships and your attitude is not Christ-like, I would say, check your wineskin. It might be leaking. It might be breaking. Because when Christ is working in your life, that's going to be reflected. You're going to become like him. And I'll finish with this third idea, that close hearts cannot receive life. We've already said that Christ comes to bring life. He does that because he gave his life on the cross for you and me. He was buried and he rose from the dead to give us the power for life. And then he gives us his spirit 
to become a new creation. When you place your faith in Christ, it's more than just a mental ascent to a new set of doctrines. It's more the acceptance of a tradition. It is a miracle that happens in your heart. The Spirit of God comes and he gives you a new birth. You, you are given the spiritual DNA to become like Jesus when you trust him. And at that moment, the possibility of new life begins. The ability to reflect him starts, opens up. The power to obey God's word is now possible. You may ask, well, when does the transformation happen? Does it happen the moment I believe or is it a progressive thing that happens over my life? And I would say to you both, when you first believe, there is a miracle that happens. John tells us, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power to become children of God. The moment that you believe, that moment there's a transformation. You become something you were not before. You become the child of God. But then that miracle simply opens up the opportunity to be transformed daily by the power of God. Paul tells believers who already were born again, who already were new creations, he tells them how they can continue to grow in that, how they can continue to become like Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verse two, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Break the mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God has a will for you to become like him, to become something that is different, to become something that is mature and great. That's God's will for your life. And the way that you experience that is to be transformed by the renewing your mind. It's a commandment. Be transformed. I said, well, I can't change myself. It's true, you can't. I can't change myself either. So when the Bible says to me, be transformed, what I understand that it's saying is open yourself up for God to transform you. Open yourself up for God to transform your mind so that your thoughts can become the things that you love and the things that you love can become the things that you do. But the opposite is true as well. If you open yourself up to God's transformation, you will experience it. But if you're close to it, then you will miss it. Close heart cannot receive the life that Jesus offers. If you're stuck in your old ways, if, you, if you're stuck in, in a certain way of thinking or acting, then God is not going to do that transformation in your life. You're not gonna become what you're supposed to become. Look at verse 39 again of Luke chapter five and what Jesus says there. It's an interesting statement. It says that no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. That's an interesting twist to this parable. Because anyone who knows anything about wine knows that old wine is supposed to be better than new wine. The older, the better. The older, the more expensive, the more valued. Wine connoisseurs would never ask for new wine. And Jesus here is saying, this is where things are different with the gospel. He is lamenting that just like a wine connoisseur would never want to taste new wine, the Pharisees would never want to taste the new life that he comes to bring. And he's saying, you're gonna miss it. Because in this case, when it comes to the gospel, the new is better than the old. That's why we sang, nothing is better 
than you. I participated in an interfaith uh, event uh, a couple of years ago here in the Valley, and I was there with clergymen from other religions, and, and that opened up the opportunity to have conversations. One particular person engaged me on Twitter, and it seemed like his goal was to convince me that his religion was right and mine was wrong. And I took that as an opportunity to, to have gospel conversations. And so I started in that dialogue talking about Christ and about the scriptures. I didn't see it as my role to defend my denomination or my church, but to explain the gospel. But every time that he replied, he wanted me, he wanted me to know that his religion was older. He wanted to convince me that his church had been around longer than my church and therefore his was the right one and mine was the wrong one. And I was so sad that he was so stuck on trying to prove how old his religion was that he missed the newness that Christ could bring into his life. And that's what happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They could not perceive the new life of Jesus because they were close to it. They were hanging on to their old ways to their old patterns, to their old mindset, and they missed the new life that Jesus came to bring. 1 Corinthians 7, 14 says this, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that are from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. If someone is to understand, to perceive, to experience the life of Christ, they need the spirit of God to be at work in their hearts and minds so they can understand it, so they can receive it. There are Christians today who, who have become children of God but have stopped growing. They're stuck in their ways, in their patterns, in their attitudes. They're not open to the transformation that Jesus wants to do every day. They've become stale and stagnant in their Christian life. There's no joy, they get grumpy and bitter, there's more complaining that there is rejoicing. But the life of Jesus, the, the thing that we are supposed to become is, is something of joy, something that flows from within us. I'm so thankful for uh, a video that my son shared with me about some softball players after winning the World Series, the College World Series in softball. They talk about joy in their lives. Listen to this video the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that can very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I, I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't, have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled 
and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously we worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. What a wonderful testimony of young ladies to understand what real joy is about. They have opened themselves up to Christ and his joy and his work in their lives. And if they keep their lives open, then they'll continue to see that transformation happen in their lives. It's amazing. Christ can work even in softball. Even in Oklahoma, Christ can make a difference. God has called you and me to become something different, to become like Christ. And that transformation begins the moment you trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. There's a miracle that happens, but it continues every day until we become mature to the full measure of Christ so that when he comes, we'll be found to be faithful like him. I want to become like Christ. I want to answer that call. Do you? Do you want to answer that call to become like Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this lesson about patches on old garments and wine and old wineskins and all that they teach us about your call in our lives to be different, to become like you to become children of God who are always growing in Christ-likeness and joy and power. Father, I ask that today if there's someone here who's not taking that first step, who's not experienced the miracle of the new birth, that today your spirit will bring conviction and faith to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord and to begin a life of transformation. Father, for those who already know you, that we would open ourselves up, that if our wineskins are getting old and and brittle, that we would allow you to form new wineskins in us so that we can experience all you have in store for us. As you continue to think about how God has spoken to you today, As you think about what your commitment needs to be today, I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're here and you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to begin this journey of becoming. And today you can take that step of faith. Maybe there's something else that God is calling you to do 
follow him in believer's baptism or, or, or allow him to work in one area of your life, whatever it is, this is the time to say yes to him. Trust him. Make your commitment by faith right there. We'll sing, but as we sing, you continue to respond to God's voice in your heart. Let's stand together.